This evening, the Hicksons have not been with us long, but in one sense they have, haven't they? If you think about the full history of Grace's, uh, Grace's history, going back to Shiloh, from what I understand, Elijah was a part of that from a uh, Pastor Paul's ministry, and the Lord saw fit to bring them to Grace a number of months ago, not quite a year, but just a little bit short of a year ago. And at that point, I, want, I remember having the conversation with him of just saying, when you become a member, I would love to have y'all um, have you speak, particularly on the message that he's going to be bringing tonight. So be praying for him. The Lord has them at a time of transition moving from here and now moving to take a new job opportunity down in New Orleans, uh, Baptist Theological Seminary. Is that correct? Yes. And so we're praying for them. And as a church family, let's ask the Lord for insight in the coming days of how we can encourage them in this time of transition. I believe they will be officially moving about the first part or middle part of June. And uh, that will give us a little bit of a timeline to know how much we have left with them. But we love you, brother. Come on up and bring the word of God to us. Thank you so much. Uh, I tried so many times to get this short, and uh, Legrand and Ben both told me that it was okay that it was an hour, so be mad at them, especially if you're in the nursery and you're hearing me now, that, that's who you need to be mad at. I'm going to bring it up on here. Miss um, Angie's got to do the slides, but I don't remember what order they're in, so I'm going to have them here so I know what's coming. Um, and then, yeah, I can see what you can see. Uh, so the intentional title is why I trust that we have the original words in the New Testament. Um, I'm not trying to convince you why you should, because hopefully you already do trust that you have the original words in the New Testament. Um, so the worst that can happen is if I say a bunch of stuff that you don't agree with, you can just call me an idiot, and I've been called worse, to be honest. So that's fine. I can live with that. Um, the background is for about almost nine years now it's been my full-time job to be a researcher in a few different places but full-time on the question of how god preserved his word the technical term for that is textual criticism you hear criticism and you immediately think it must be a bad thing some of it is or some kinds of criticism is other kinds are just unavoidable and that's uh what this is so i'll, I'll try to explain it uh, a little bit um, to, we can move to the next one. As for an outline, um, the first part, I'll give you a brief overview of the evidence that I have to work with. And I think that's the least important part of what I'm going to say. So if you need to take a nap, that's the time. Um, most of the time when you have people that like have my job come and speak, that's all they talk about. And it's important. I don't want to say it's not important. It is my job, right? But I think that is the least important thing that we could talk about. So I'd like to go in a different direction. The second place is I'll explain some of uh, uh, three main approaches to how you deal with the issue of we have copies of the New Testament and they don't always say the same words. So we got to figure out what to do with those differences. And that can lead to some uncertainties. And that's the most uncomfortable part, but I don't think it does anybody any good to act like that's not there, right? Even in scripture, I think, Second Peter it says there are some things that are hard to understand, right? God doesn't promise us that he's going to answer all of our questions. Like, you, there's still room for faith, you know? We still have to trust him at some points. We have a reasonable faith, um, but uh, I don't think it does any, anybody any good to act like there are not places where we have to say, you know, I'm, I'm not sure, uh, I have to trust the Lord. In seminary, when we were learning eschatology, 
the, the line was, you don't pick the view that has all the right answers, you pick the view that has the fewest problems, because uh, there are just a lot of places in Revelation where I'm reading it, and I'm like, I think this is what this means, but I would not die on this hill, you know? Uh, that's a level of uncertainty that we just have to live with. Um, but we can be certain about Jesus, and I think that's the grounds for all of it. Uh, finally, uh, I'll discuss theologically if we have time, right? Uh, this is the most important part. Saved it for the end, and this is going to go way longer anyway, and I apologize again. Um, why do we have these uncertainties, and how do I deal with them as a Christian? Uh, but first, we will talk about some secular psychology which uh, you didn't expect, right? Um, uh, you can go next. The Dunning-Kruger effect. Anybody ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? One, a couple of you. So as you go that way, left to right, that's how much you know. And as you go down to up, that's how much you think you know, right? There were a couple of psychologists in the 90s. They, they did a study, and we, people often have this curve. And what happens is you watch a couple of YouTube videos and you're like, I, I know what this is about, right? And that's called Mount Stupid, right? Uh, in some contexts, that's called the cage stage. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about and some of us have been there, right? You, you learn a bit more and it gets really jarring and you find out, I really had no idea this is that complicated. Uh, and that gets called the valley of despair because it, it can be really jarring and it can be really troubling when you think you knew all the answers and find out that you don't. Um, and as you go on, you, you learn a bit more and you have more confidence. What I would like to do is tunnel through. Oh, yeah, there we go. That's what happens, right? When you, when you fall from Mount Stupid down to the valley of despair, uh, it's really jarring, and I'd like to tunnel through that and get you on the other side this evening because if you think about it, if you're climbing a mountain, um, we're just moving through. <laughs> Not really, we, you can leave it there, but um, uh, uh, as you're climbing a mountain, if you get to a point, it's fine. The problem is when you fall down to that point. That's where you get hurt. Uh, and in my casual observation, most of the time when somebody has a crisis of faith, it's because they thought they had all these answers, and they put a lot of stock in their own understanding, and they fell down to that. Um, and I don't think that has to be the case. Uh, Basil Manley Jr., this is my tie-in to where I'm saying it's not completely secular psychology. He wrote a book on uh, the inspiration of scripture. He was one of the four founders of Southern Seminary, and I plan on getting back to him later. But in that book, he says, an unwary advocate with more zeal than knowledge may honestly assume an indefensible position, and when driven from that, may, in his panic, find no secure stopping place. So Basil Manley Jr. was talking about this, what happens when you're shaken from that without, uh, without any preparation, 100 years before Dunning and Kruger made their study. Uh, so it's not, it's not, I don't think this is, just useless secular psychology. It's something that even a Christian 100 years before was recognizing could happen. I think if, uh, if we have the Holy Spirit and if we, if we uh, approach the issue with humility, we don't have anything to worry about, right? By the way, if you have questions, just write them down and ask me later. Happy to, happy to answer. Uh, okay, so the first part, what's the evidence that corroborates my confidence? We can go to the next one. How many of you have heard something like this? This is specifically about the book of Revelation. 
Most of the original is lost, of course. It was written in ancient Hebrew or Aramaic and copied by hand many times and then translated into Koine Greek and copied by hand many times and then translated into Latin and copied by hand many times and then translated into Elizabethan English and printed with opportunities for error and confusion at every single stage. Now it reads like a bad acid trip. I suspect it always did. How many of you heard something like that before, right? Yeah, you, you hear it, you can get the next one, right? Um, it's, it's wrong, right? That's just, that's not how we got our Bible. Um, we can go ahead and get to the next one. I, um, the way that we have our Bible, we go back to the beginning. And by the way, I'm not talking about the Old Testament. That's an important issue. That's just not what I deal with. Um, I'm only talking about the New Testament here. God, the Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures, right? The apostles and evangelists wrote them down. Every letter inspired. They were written down in Greek. Uh, back then, they didn't have printers where you just hit print and get copies. They didn't have copy machines. If you wanted a copy of a book, you either copied it by hand yourself or you had somebody do it for you. That was the only way. And so when you have copies made by hand, people make mistakes. God could have done it in such a way that there were never mistakes when copies are made by hand. But just the fact of history is that's not how he did it. Um, and we don't get to tell God what he should have done. We have to live with what he did. Uh, and not only is there a chance of making a mistake when you're copying by hand, but there's also, when you live in that world, you know that the book that you're reading could have mistakes in it because it's being copied by hand. So what do you do when you come across a thing that just doesn't sit right and you think, I think that's a mistake? You might correct it. So not only do you have somebody possibly making a mistake and getting the text wrong, but you have uh, the possibility of somebody having the right, the right text, thinking it's wrong, and making it wrong, right? That's just the world that we live in. Got to deal with that. Um, that being said, somebody has to gather up those manuscripts, the differences, and sort them out and have a text. Uh, people have been doing that uh, since the printing press, almost. The first one ever published was in 1516. We've been doing it ever since then. So somebody has got to sort through and figure out what is the text based on our manuscripts. Two that are different, they can't both be right, right? One of them's gotta be uh, right. And it's those printed editions, those texts that our English Bibles are translated from. So you're not getting something like the description, which was a real thing in a book that came, uh, you know, we get our Bibles from the end of this line of chaos. No, it's we're going back to original sources and getting as early as we can. Um, and there's every reason to, to trust that, as I'll, as I'll get into. We have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. Uh, that's Greek copies. They're not full Bibles. Surprisingly, only about 60 of them are the full New Testament. And that's because of the way books worked, right? You, if you're copying everything on parchment, which is made from animal skin, it just takes a lot of room, right? You might have a book of the four Gospels and a book of Paul's letters, right? It's rare that you have the whole New Testament all in one book. Doesn't mean that they didn't think it was all God's word. They did. They just kept it in multiple volumes. Uh, these 5,000, a lot of times you'll have people get a very specific number, 5,800 and so and so. As a general rule, this is going to sound really harsh. 
As a general rule, if somebody gives you a specific number, they're probably wrong. Um, and the reason, is, there's a bunch of reasons uh, new stuff's being found all the time, but also there's a problem of people would sell them off leaf at a time. So, oh, we have a new manuscript over here, and we have a new one over here, and it wasn't until later they found out that this is two pages of the same book, right? This is not two manuscripts, it's one, but they got counted twice. Uh, best estimate, 51 to 5,300. Um, over 5,000, which is a lot. They're not all early. Uh, the majority of them are from several hundred years after the fact, but some of them are early. Uh, by the 300s, so the New Testament was written in the 0-hundreds. By the 300s, that's when we get full Bibles, full New Testaments. Um, we don't have a whole lot, but we have a few. And by the way, 150, 200 years ago, we knew about these. So our New Testaments and our Bibles that were made 150, 200 years ago are based on that knowledge, right? By the 200s, so stepping down earlier, we've got big chunks of the New Testament. We've got manuscripts that have several pages, so there's big chunks. Um, that gives us knowledge in those places, so not everywhere, but in those places a bit earlier. And by the 100s, we have a handful of little fragments, um, not many, but we do have a handful of little fragments. And what that tells us, or what that lets us do, is that lets us spot check those places. So we can compare our knowledge of those places where we have really early manuscripts to the places where we don't. And what we find is each time we go back further, we don't get surprises. The text is basically what we expect it to be. Just in November, I did, gave a research paper on this. It was 45 pages of really tedious data, and the conclusion was uh, these early manuscripts don't really tell us anything that we didn't know 150 years ago. To me, that's really um, inspiring confidence. Uh, I've heard one guy say, oh, well, you know, John 3.16 could just disappear from your Bible the next time somebody digs up something from each. Look, if you're saying that, then you have no idea how this works, right? The way that it has always worked historically is when we dig up something, we, we find out that it says what we expected it to say, right? And we can deal with that, and we can, we can uh, deal with the issues that it brings up. We don't get surprises. Um, you go to, yeah, the next one. So this is a chart that a friend of mine made. This is all uh, the purple is uh, verses in John's Gospel where we have at least part of the verse attested in the manuscript before the fourth century, so 300s. That's a lot of John's Gospel, right, before the 300s. Um, not the whole verse, right? Keep in mind that we didn't have any of this 150 years ago. This is all stuff that we've dug up since then, that have surfaced since then. Uh, if, you'll, if you'll go uh, to the next one, this is Mark. Same, same era, Mark, only the purple. So John, we had 98% of the verses attested. Mark, we only have 22%. Does that mean we can't trust Mark as much as we can trust John? I don't think so. I think what that means is we know a lot about John's gospel, and we can compare what we knew about John's gospel 150 years ago to what we know now with 98% of the verses having earlier attestation. And what we see is 
we still have John's gospel. It's the same gospel. There are no surprises. The, the differences that we know about are differences that we knew about then, right? Um, so with Mark, even though we don't have as many manuscripts, I don't think, I think it's reasonable to trust Mark just as much as we trust John because we can see from John, we have evidence from John that the text is stable. In the 22% of verses of Mark, we have evidence there that the text is stable. So why would the text not be stable everywhere else? Of course it would be, right? There's just no reason to think that it wouldn't be. Uh, so we can move on. That's all the evidence. That's what everybody talks about. I'm not going to talk about more than that. Sorry if you're disappointed. Uh, I think there's just more important things to discuss rather than what the evidence is. And if you'll notice, or if you remember, the way I framed that was evidence that corroborates my confidence. Because I don't think we should have confidence in the Bible from the evidence itself. I think that corroborates. That gets into my position on apologetics, though, which is that it's primarily to help a believer, right? God can use it in a lot of ways. God can use it to save people, but primarily I see the best value as helping me to understand that my faith is reasonable, not to be the grounds for my faith. Jesus is the grounds for my faith and believing in what he did. All right, so um, apologize. Uh, ultimately, I mentioned God could have made it so that every copy of his word is identical and none of this matters, right? He could also have uh, made it so that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives you perfect knowledge and you never have any wrong doctrine. Does anybody think that they have that gift? It's really good because I would have been concerned. Uh, it reminds me, Spurgeon allegedly said when he met somebody who claimed to have uh, attained a state of sinless perfection, he would stomp on their foot as hard as he could. Um, I imagine if somebody says that they've got it all figured out in perfect doctrine, you can guarantee that that person is wrong, right? It's like my dad says, whenever somebody predicts when Jesus is coming back, you know that's when he's not coming back because he said nobody knows the day or the hour, right? Um, God could have done that, but he didn't. Um, he could have given us perfect understanding, but he didn't. Uh, what he gives us is the Holy Spirit. He gives us a promise that we will have enough for what we need. We, he gives us promises that he won't leave us or forsake us. Um, and the fact of history is that our copies of God's word have differences, and somebody has to sort those out. So I'm going to give you an example. We'll go to the next one. This is a, an actual page from, from my Bible. I, I think I took this photo like this week. Uh, this is from Job 7. Can somebody spot the problem? Just, you know, yell it out. The, the, the R, right? Has not man R a hard surface? That's an easy one, right? Let's think about how this happened. Um, well, the, the R itself, that's a nonsense word. We don't, in English, that isn't a word, right? So it doesn't make sense. It sticks out for that reason. Uh, could it be the word or and somebody just left out an O? Well, that doesn't fit either. It doesn't have a, and by the way, this, you can always just look it up in Job and see, right? If you didn't have that, how would you resolve this? Uh, or doesn't make sense in the context, so it's probably not that either. Uh, if you'll go down to 
that next line and are not his days like the days, you'll see that there's a little s. And the way that my Bible marks cross-references is it uses the letter, the alphabet, superscript, italics, between the two words. Well, R is the letter that comes right before S. So to me, the most likely explanation is this is supposed to be a cross-reference and somebody just forgot to put it there, right? Makes sense. Um, can I prove that? No, I can't. I can't prove that that's the case because it could be that whoever uh, was typing this out accidentally hit an R and then nobody caught that mistake, right? Now, if that were the case, the person who put in the cross-references would also have to have forgotten an R, right? But, you know, it complicates things. I can be reasonably certain, morally certain, if you want, to say that that's what happened, right? It's the cross-reference. Problem is, is they're not always that easy. Um, a lot of them are, but not all of them. And I don't think we need to pretend like they all are. Um, there are three main approaches to this. If you go to the next slide. Before I go to the three main approaches, I want to say you can hold any of these approaches in a way that is good and glorifying to God um, and have confidence that the Bible in your hands is God's word and that you're not missing out on anything. And so I hold to one of these positions. One of my absolute favorite people in the world who is just a treasure of a person that we're not worthy of, holds to a different one than me. And one of the most biblical and healthiest churches I've ever been to holds to the third one that neither he nor I hold to. And he and I have both been to that church together at the same time. So you can, if you approach the issue with humility and with the Holy Spirit, uh, you can hold to any of these positions in a good way. And the easiest thing that you can do is honestly just to say, I'm just going to use the Bible that my church uses, and you will be fine. I promise you, you will be fine. That's what I do for the Old Testament. There are questions about the Old Testament. I don't know Hebrew. I can't sort those out. So I have to say, look, this is the ESV. It's just what I've used for years. I'm not saying it's the best. It's just what I've used for years. I, you know, thus saith the Lord. And I'm, I'm okay. there are some places where I don't, you know, if there's a difference, I don't, I don't know how to translate it. So I just try to have humility about it and say, you know, this is, uh, God's not obligated to answer all of my questions, but I can believe that this is his word. If you have to make a decision for yourself, these are the three main options. There are nuances. There's, there's some that don't fit into these three views, but these are the three main ones. The first one is the traditional text view. So this is the position that in the 1500s, early 1600s, when the, when the Reformation happened, the manuscripts that the editors then used for those printed editions were the best ones. And the proof of that is we got the Reformation out of it, right? God has obviously blessed uh, the use of the King James for 400 years. Um, and they will say, therefore, that's the right one. There's a huge spectrum within that. So you have activists who kind of are very vocal about it and say you should not use anything else. Um, you've got other people that just use this one because that's what they use and you don't think about it. But, you know, there, there's a spectrum, right? Um, in theory, you, you could have the New King James, the Modern English Version, the Geneva Bible, the Luther Bible if you're German, those all fit into this view. King James-onlyism also, um, but 
as I mentioned, you can hold any, any of these uh, good or bad, in a good or bad way. Um, now, that view isn't entirely without uncertainty, right? Because the additions back then did have differences in them. Not a lot of them, but they did have a few. And so you do have to sort those out. The editors of the King James sorted them out for them. So a lot of people just default to that. You don't have to. Um, the, only, the only way to have no uncertainty whatsoever and not have to make a decision is, is really the Ruckmanite King James onlyism, where it's like the King James is it, and if the King James disagrees with the Greek, then it's because the Greek's wrong, right? That's the, I think that's terrible, it's terrible theology, right? Um, but that's really the only way to get out of the, the problem of having differences. Uh, the middle one is the Byzantine text or majority text. The majority text, ironically, because it's the, major, the minority position here, <laughs> probably. Uh, this says that uh, the text that was used in the Byzantine Empire, uh, that in general, the majority of the Greek manuscripts are very similar. Um, and so the right text, God would have preserved his word most purely through all of the, you know, the majority of them. As you may have guessed, there's, you don't get completely out of, out, out of the problem of uncertainties with this one either. There's two editions, right? They are different, right? Um, the, the Byzantine text isn't always monolithic. Sometimes it's divided between itself. Not often, but sometimes it is. The book of Revelation is, is one of those examples where there's kind of two, there's not a single stream of the Byzantine text. There's kind of two. And so you have to make a decision. Um, and finally, the, the last one is a modern uh, critical text. So this is like the ESV, the Legacy Standard, New American Standard. Um, this one is the most complicated of the three, I think, and the one that probably has the most places of uncertainty. But if it's the right one, then the other ones have false certainty, right? And the, even if it has more uncertainty, it's still the maximum certainty a person can have. Uh, this says, look, God gave us all these manuscripts, so what we're going to do is look at how they're copied, um, what kinds of mistakes are made. You can find this out through corrections and unique readings and study this for manuscripts in general, study it for single ones, look at all the evidence that we can and figure out what kinds of changes are most likely to happen and use that knowledge to figure out what the text is. Um, those are the three places, the three, the three options. Again, I don't think you have to choose one. I think you're fine if you just use the Bible that your church uses. Uh, if, a Bible that's in use by uh, like-minded believers is a Bible that you can know that the Holy Spirit's using, right? I would stay away from the Passion Translation, the New World Translation. Those are not like-minded believers, right? Um, but, you know, uh, this morning, LaGrande, you're saying you were doing your study from the Legacy Standard. That's a, you know, as I, haven't, I still haven't seen a copy. I've heard wonderful things, right? That, um, that, that's coming from a different one of these than the New King James. It doesn't mean that God isn't using them. It doesn't mean that you can have either one and, and be worried, right? Um, an example of... This last one that gets used is, it's like having a 1,100 pieces of a 1,000 piece picture, puzzle. 
I don't think that's a great uh, example. A better example is one about the same picture but different resolution. So if we had this photo, if you're trying to explain to somebody how to get here and this is all you had, is that enough? Does anybody think that they could see that and not know, like, what are we talking about, all right? You, there's a truck blocking the way, right? So it's not, a, you know, it could be better, right? If we go to the next one, what about this one? Is this in, can, is this the right church? Are you sure? You sure it's the right church? The next one. If you can see it, it says Paul Lloyd, pastor, right? But that's not true. LaGrande's the pastor. So obviously, this is a different church, right? Is it, that's ridiculous, right? It's still, like, if that's all you had, would that be enough? What about the next one? What about that one? <laughs> I mean, if that's all you had, and somebody was trying to get here, would that be enough to get them here? Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, the, the church building used to be a funeral home. Right? That's why there's great lighting right here, it's for the casket, right? Um, we have the tools, like that's enough. That you, they're, they're the same building. Now, there are differences with the picture, you know. Something, some, some things are right and are not right anymore, but it's the same building, and the differences we're just looking at different pictures of the same building. Uh, our resolution might not be exactly the same each, each way. All right, where are we at? So, how different are the three approaches? We go to the next one. This is Maurice Robinson. He is one of the editors of the Byzantine text, so the middle one. He calculated that the that middle one and the modern text they're 94% identical, uh, and the the majority and the traditional text are closer than that. So, it's a worst case scenario if you just want to say I want to be as uncertain about God's word as I can be. You still are only dealing with about six percent of the New Testament. Um, that's it. 6%. Now that 6%, we're going to talk about what is that 6% because a lot of that is, doesn't matter, right? And you, how does that not matter? Well, we'll get to that. 94% um, identical. So no matter which view of the text you take, 94% of it's identical. If you, if you know Greek, you're great. You can look this up. If you don't know Greek, the best thing that you can do if you want to know what are the differences just get a New King James. There are footnotes in the bottom of the New King James that say NU text, that's the modern edition, and M text, it's a majority. That's most of everything that makes a difference. So like right there, footnote of the New King James, you've got all of this information. Is that a reason to just abandon the faith? I don't think so. Uh, we'll, we'll keep moving. So 94% but that's not 100%, so are there uncertainties? Well, yes, um, but keep going. Two things to remember. These are not places where we have no idea what Scripture is. Um, it could be anything, right? It's not the case. It's places where we have two things, and we're not sure, not completely sure, if it's this word or this word, right? Or this phrase or this phrase. Um, some of them are bigger. They're not many. Um, but it's a choice between two knowns, not a choice of who knows how many unknowns. Um, worst case, there's a couple places where it's like three, 
uh, three, we, was one of three. We, things need to keep in mind. Uh, we might be uncertain of the text, but God isn't. It's his word. He's not uncertain of it. He's in control. He's sovereign. Um, he says that all things work for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. And all things mean things where we might have to say, I'm not sure. Um, we will keep going. I'm going to give you some examples of uncertainties. I should have put that in bold. It's not showing up. And Luke 8.30, by the way, all these examples are coming from like my position of the three. Um, that's just, that is what it is. In Luke 8.30, do you spell legion with an E or an I? Right, there's the Greek. There's a Greek form, a Greek version of an I or a Greek version of an E. It's the word legion. I am not sure. I think it's the I. Uh, it's not a hill I'm willing to die on. It could be the E. Does it matter? Does anybody think it matters? This is not a difference that would ever show up in an English translation. It's the spelling of a word. Even if you're reading it in Greek, you probably wouldn't notice it. Uh, but it's God's word. Every letter matters. So of course it matters. But also it doesn't matter at all, right? If you think that your salvation is on the line, because you've got a Bible where legion is translated from the E word and the original text is an I word. Um, you, got, you got other problems, right? You got other problems beyond not being sure if it's an E or an I. Um, we'll move to the next one. Uh, you really can't see any of that, can you? Uh, one edition of Acts says there's about 150, 155 places of uncertainty. That sounds... Um, scary, right? Uh, ten of those, so ten of all of them, difference between two Greek words, de and te. Everybody say de, D-E, de. Now, now say te, T-E, te. Um, now try to say te, but whispering, so no air is moving through your vocal cords, so te. Now do that with de, say de, but whispering. It's, it's the same word, isn't it, right? Like the way that your mouth works, with a D and a T. It's the same structure in your mouth. And the difference is whether or not air is passing through your vocal cords when you make the sound. Um, that's the difference. It's one letter, D or T, very related structurally. Also, they both mean and. So there's 10 places where we're not sure if the text is and or if it's and. You know, I mean, is that something to be worried about? Now, there are nuances, to be sure. They're two different words. There's nuances between them. But they're both words for and. Are, do you not have God's word if you can't decide which word for and goes in those ten places? I don't think that's something to be worried about. Uh, next one. Here's one that makes a difference. The New King James and the ESV and Acts uh, 1826, there are 25 times in those 150, 155 places where it's the same words but in a different order. You don't always uh, make a difference in translation. A lot of times in Greek, word order isn't as fixed as it is in English, so it doesn't matter. Here, it does matter. So are we talking about Aquila and Priscilla or Priscilla and Aquila? Uh, how many of you have been talking about uh, 
Dardis and Kathy for just picking y'all for an example. You're talking about Dardis and Kathy and your spouse says you, well, um, you know, I thought Kathy and Dardis said this. And you say, wait, wait, who are Kathy and Dardis? I thought we, I thought we were talking about Dardis and Kathy. Who, I don't know who Kathy and Dardis are. That's a little bit ridiculous, isn't it? Mm, Twenty-five times. That's the question of what happens. Uh, is that something to be worried about? I don't think so. I don't. I can live with that uncertainty of not being completely sure which word order is correct. Um, we had one this morning. Uh, in the sermon, I was checking in the, the uh, I, this is why I had my phone out. I was taking a picture of this. <laughs> Emma, by the way, Emma told me that some of y'all were on your phones this morning, and she saw you scrolling. And I told her, they probably have Bible apps. So just letting you know. Um, at Matthew 13, 51, uh, some editions of the text omit the words Jesus said to them. Now, if you're reading it, you don't need those words to know that Jesus said to them, right? It, Jesus is already talking. Uh, do you, if you're not sure if those words are there or not, is that something to worry about? I don't think it is. I think I can say, I, thus saith the Lord, either way. Uh, the next one, they're not all, they're not all that innocent, right? Sometimes there is a difference. In Mark 9, 29, do these things only go out by prayer or by prayer and fasting? I think it's prayer and fasting, but it could be prayer, right? That's a hard one. Um, and that makes a difference, right? Uh, Luke 10, 1 and 17, did Jesus send out 70 or 72? Uh, well, one of those is correct and one of them isn't, right? They, he sent out a number. Um, so one of those is, is wrong. Um, I don't think I need to know how many people Jesus sent out. It's, he sent them out two by two, so it's either 35 pairs or 36 pairs. It's not a question of we have no idea how many people Jesus sent. We don't even know if Jesus sent anybody out. But no, we know he sent out 70 or 72. Not 70 and 7,000, 70 or 72. I don't need to know the answer to that to have real faith in Jesus. That's something that I can live with. Did Jesus sweat like great drops of blood or not? Some manuscripts don't have those two verses. I think he did. Um, it's not cut and dry. Uh, so if I get to heaven and find out he didn't, then I, I'll be okay with that because I know everything else that happened, right? The crucifixion, the resurrection are not questioned. Uh, in John 7, 8, did Jesus say, I'm not going up to the feast or I'm not yet going up to the feast? Well, in verse 10, he does go up to the feast. So some people will say, well, that's a, that's a problem. Jesus, Jesus lied, if that's the case. Well, no, you know, maybe you're going out and your spouse says you, to you, can you, uh, can you get some milk at the store? And you say, well, I'm not going to the store. And then later that day, you go out again and you go to the store. You know, in context, we understand what that means. So if the correct one is, I'm not going up to the feast, Jesus didn't lie. That's not a mistake. We might not understand how it's not, but we can trust that it's not. Um, the next one, here's an analogy. When you quote scripture, uh, does it matter if you get everything exactly right? If I said, you know, uh, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Um, did I just quote Satan's Bible to you? 
you're laughing because you understand how ridiculous that is, right? No, Me, the text has a meaning, right? If you, if you have to have all the words right, that's, that's a magic book, right? That's not the next one, that's not the Bible. Um, if, if it only works if you pronounce everything just right, right? If it only works if you have all the letters, that's not the Bible, that's something else. Um, so we'll go on. Why ultimately do I have confidence in God's word? Because I'm not trusting the scholars who edited it uh, now or in the 1500s. I'm trusting the God whose word it is. So in Isaiah 5411, um, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth that shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That verse applies to your Bible, right? It does. That verse applies to your Bible. You can trust that this is God's word. It will accomplish what he wants. Uh, the next one. You've heard this one a lot. Uh, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Is God able to keep you from stumbling or is he not? If he's able to keep you from stumbling, and we know this from the 96% of the, the text that's not in question at all, then do we have anything to worry about in that other 6%? I don't think so. This is the next one. Um, yes, there you go. It didn't, I didn't change here. I was expecting it to change here, and it didn't. Well, what's happening? Uh, there's a difference here. So uh, can anybody spot the difference? And God is able to make all grace abound to you that, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That's the ESV. King James says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Who can spot the difference? Yes, so that's a translational difference. Um, that's not a difference from the Greek. That's a difference in how you translate it into English. So it's the same Greek there, even though that is a difference in English. Can anybody guess what the difference in the Greek is behind these? Somebody's got to guess, right? Somebody. Nobody. You got to you got to guess. Uh, oh, I didn't even look at punctuation. It might be. I don't know. Um, that's not the one I'm thinking of. I'll put it that way. Um, again, I didn't look at the commas, so maybe. Just the words. Uh, so you would think that, but it's not. It's not that one. Two and toward, not that one. It's not you. I thought I heard somebody else. Always. Always. It's not always. You can go. It's it's is. It's is. So in Greek you can have the word is able. So it's kind of like our English word can. It's a verb. Or you can have the adjective able. And in Greek, if you just have a subject and an adjective, you don't need the word to be. So um, is uh, is it that God is able, or is it God is able? Might as well just not be a Christian anymore, because I don't, you know, really, like, 
That's the difference here. And again, they're not all that minimal, but when we're talking about 94% aren't even that, and the 6%, a lot of it's that. Uh, so I trust that God is not going to let me down. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Do you believe that or do you not? If you believe that, then there's nothing to worry about. Um, I'm going to give you a really, really easy way to know that you can trust your Bible, and you're going to think it's ridiculous, and I might get in trouble for it. Better to ask forgiveness than permission, right? But you're going to remember it tomorrow. And that is just remember, God is never going to give you up. So, next one. He's never going to give you up. Uh, he's never going to let you down. He's never going to run around and desert you. Never going to make you cry. He's never going to say goodbye. And he's never going to tell a lie and hurt you. Do you believe that or not? Well, if that's true, then why should we be upset if we have to say, well, I'm not sure if the Greek text behind this translation or the Greek text behind this translation is, is the right one. Uh, that's okay. I think that's okay to say I don't know sometimes. Uh, now, finally, um, I have no idea how long I've been going, but uh, we're getting there. Um, some theological reflection on this. Uh, this is Basil Manley Jr. I mentioned him. He is important, I think, because uh, of the, the Crawford toy controversy. It's a story that every student at Southern Seminary hears every time there's a new faculty member added. Uh, this guy wrote the a statement of faith for the seminary. He was one of the four founders. There was a fifth guy that they hired, and his name was Crawford Toy. He went off to Germany, studied German higher criticism, became liberal, ended up denying the faith. They had to force him out. I can't remember if he resigned willingly or if they kicked him out. It was a big controversy. Um, it was very painful. He was like he was their boy, right? He was their guy, and then he just just he just left the faith, right? Um, it was very painful. So having lived through that and knowing what higher criticism does, this is the German bad stuff where you just talk about, well, Jesus didn't really say that because Jesus wouldn't have said that, right? That's um, comparing that to differences of manuscripts that he's very positive about. And he says, some disagreements and difficulties arise apparently from errors in the transcription of our present copies. So we already know that, right? Notwithstanding all the care. So uh, he's acknowledging that there are differences because of mistakes in copies. But he says, uh, this is, by the way, in his book on the inspiration of scripture, the limits of error within which we are practically sure of our ground. So we got limits of what the mistakes could be. We're practically sure within that they're very confidently fixed and leave little opportunity of mistake as to the teaching of scripture in regard to any fact, doctrine, or precept. He was right, and he's still right. Um, if we take the widest view of saying, I'm not sure which the text is, we still have the same doctrine, uh, same facts, same precepts. As, as I mentioned, the, the guy who he and I disagree on the approach together going to a church that disagrees with both of us uh, and it all worked and it was fine and nobody killed each other because we understood that this isn't a problem. If there are textual uncertainties 
as we frankly admit, he says, there are also textual certainties. 94% of it, I'll add. Um, and these are ample enough for guidance through the snares of earth and to the glories of heaven. Um, there's, if, if you believe the 94%, if, is, if that's true and you believe it, there's nothing to worry about in the 6%. You might just have to say, I'm not sure, and you're not going to die from that. Um, we'll move on because I know I'm running out of time. Here's John Dagg. Uh, John Daggs, this is writing in the 1850s, so um, quite a long time ago. He didn't have nearly as much information as we have now. He says, uh, the preservation of the inspired word in as much perfection as was necessary to answer the purpose for which it is given. God has given us as much, uh, uh, as much access to his perfect word as we need, right? God's word is perfect, it is certain, it is secure. Our access to it might not be, but what we can take confidence in is that our access to it is enough, right? Um, we are able in every case to determine the correct reading so far as is necessary for the establishment of our faith or the direction of our practice in every important particular, right? So the places where we have to say, well, I'm not sure if it's this or this, um, those aren't questions for how to be a Christian. Those aren't questions for did Jesus exist or not? Um, they don't get to that. Dag says, uh, their utmost deviations do not change the direction of the line of truth. I love this quote. And if they seem in points to widen that line very little, then the path that lies between their widest boundaries is too narrow to permit us to stray. Um, so if all you've got is an ESV, you're going to be fine. I'm not saying the ESV is perfect in every way it translates it, but if that's what you've got, you're going to be fine. If all you've got is a King James, you're going to be fine because um, you have the Holy Spirit. You have other Christians. You have a lot of resources that God has given you. Uh, we'll get to this other one, Vern Poitras. He wrote a phenomenal book. I love it so much. I've already decided I'm going to require it in the, for a class I'm going to teach in the spring. It's called Inerrancy and the Gospels. And it's the books about places where it can be hard to reconcile two parallel gospel passages. But what he says is relevant to this, where it can be hard to reconcile differences in manuscripts. He says, God does not guarantee or promise that we as finite creatures will always be able to find satisfying answers to all our questions, even questions about the Bible. It's for him to decide how much information and how much insight we have. We walk by faith, not by sight. Uh, he says, believers sometimes struggle with their faith, with an apparent absence of God, with tension between God's promises and his delay in fulfilling them, with the fact that suffering comes to the righteous. This suffering includes mental suffering in circumstances where believers do not find immediate intellectual answers to their questions. Oh, well, this is, it's like he was reading my mind here. It's exactly what this is talking about. He says, why do people avoid the route of intellectual suffering? Well, part of the answer is that we are protective of our own comfort, and we prefer a certain kind of intellectual comfort to mental suffering. I mentioned it can be uncomfortable when you hit that valley of despair, and we don't like that. We want to be comfortable. We want to, like, be a castle up on Mount Stupid and not have to worry about anything. It's, it's hurt, it hurts when we, when we hit those problems, um, but that's just not how God designed it. 
He says, uh, God gives us a Bible as a light to my path. We can have genuine confidence when we receive his instruction, but this confidence can be perverted through sin into pride. The prideful Orthodox thinks that he has an exact mastery of every question and can look down on anyone who does not agree with his opinions. So we have to approach the position in humility, right? Um, God does use other translations. He does. We have to acknowledge that even if it's not our preferred one, we still have to acknowledge that God is speaking to people through that. He's saving people through that. Um, so uh, Poitras has a chapter uh, called Positive Purposes for Difficulty. So what, why could a difficulty in the Bible be a good thing? Well, here's Poitras's answer, and I think he's right. God may use difficulties in a less obvious way, not so much to teach things that we might otherwise overlook, but to engender humility in our attitudes. Any difficulty that does not quickly yield to our investigation testifies to the fact that God is greater than we are and he understands what we do not. Sometimes we just have to approach the Bible and say, I don't understand how all this works out, but Lord, I trust you. I trust that you know what you're doing. I trust that you're working all things to my good. And uh, thank you for that, right? Uh, Poitras says, we grow in faith when we learn to trust God for what we do not yet understand, as well as trust him in what we do understand from, what, from his word. So let's apply that. What we don't understand, that 6%. What we do understand, the 94%, where there's no questions. Um, think about that. We grow in faith when we learn to trust God for what we do not yet understand, as well as to trust him in what we do understand from his word. Difficult cases challenge us more radically because they confront us with the challenge to trust God when it looks as though he cannot be trusted. The experience is not new or unique to the present time. What did Abraham think when God called on him to sacrifice Isaac? Did it seem to Abraham that God was not trustworthy in this one instance? No, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Dag uh, says, God has seen it wiser and better to leave the members of Christ to feel the necessity of mutual sympathy and dependence than to bestow every gift on every individual. He has bestowed the knowledge necessary for the translation of his word on a sufficient number of faithful men to answer the purpose of his benevolence. So what Dag is saying is, sometimes I don't have all the answers and that's God's purpose in that it's showing me, he's showing me that I need other Christians. I mentioned uh, when it comes to the Old Testament, I just have my ESV and I say, thus saith the Lord, because I don't, I don't know how to go with that. I have to ask other friends who know that better than me. Um, and that's okay, and that's part of being a Christian is knowing that we have to depend on each other. We, uh, are the means of God's sanctification for us in Christianity and community, right? Local church body, we're here to sharpen each other and to help each other. Um, let's, uh, let's almost, let's be done, I think. Let's be done. Do, do you believe, do you believe Jesus or do you not, right? Um, I think skip uh, the next one and go on to the next one. Yeah, there we go. So how, how, do we, how to approach the issue? If, you're, if you want to be someone who makes these decisions, how should you do it? How should you approach it? Well, first, ask yourself, do I trust God or not? Will he let me down? Will he withhold from me anything necessary for the establishment of 
our faith or the direction of our practice? Is God going to withhold something from me that I need? Might think I need it, right? You can think that you need a lot of things that you don't really need. Is God going to withhold, withhold from you something that you need? Did he who did not spare his own son not freely give us all things? He, not freely give, he didn't even spare his own son for us. Why would he withhold something that we need? Uh, so keep that in mind before anything else. Root two, start with the places where there are no uncertainties. Do you believe those verses? Do you believe that those things or do you not? If you believe them, that gives you a big ground for approaching the places where you might not be sure if the Bible says this or that. Uh, number three, remind yourself God is infinite and I am not. I might just need to have faith and trust him. Might, that might be the case. Uh, worst case scenario, number four, Worst case scenario, if you're determined, like I want to know as much uncertainty about the Bible as I can, look at the footnotes in a New King James, and that will give you sort of the widest, the widest places on that road. And you'll see that the road doesn't change. Even the widest places, the road still goes to the same place. So finally, uh, last slide, and then we're done, right? I don't know how long I've been, but I know it's been long, and I'm sorry. Blame them for it, right? Why do I trust that my Bible is God's word? Uh, by the Holy Spirit, I trust the God whose word it is. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? I believe that. And because I believe that, I trust my Bible. I know that the vast majority of the New Testament text is as certain as a finite creature can have and is the same no matter which approach you take. Thought I had something written down from a guy who holds a very different position from mine who said about the same thing, as much certainty as a finite creature can have. And that's all the certainty that we need is what God has given us. Um, I know that the remaining uncertainties which is what we got to talk about that's uncomfortable, are the possibilities between known choices. They're not complete unknowns. They're difference between knowns. And the differences are not enough to invalidate the things that are certain. I know that with the Holy Spirit and when Scripture is properly interpreted, you will end up with the same doctrine no matter which approach you take. That's why you can have all of these views in the same local church and everybody's okay with it. And uh, the, the least important part of it is that I've seen from the history of manuscript research that new discoveries consistently confirm or shed more light on what we already know. Uh, they don't give us surprises and they don't tell us uh, radical changes from what we thought we knew. Um, and that, that's in short why I can hold my Bible and say, thus saith the Lord. Uh, give it back over to you.